All right, here we are with what are we with? <laughs> I guess it's just going to be one of those kinds of conversations, isn't it? <laughs> Probably because I had some kombucha today. So apologies if I'm a little something, whatever the effect of kombucha is. It's definitely something for me. And I've also been meaning to say, damn, this haircut is annoying. <laughs> it was actually in India that I last got a proper haircut and it cost me 50 rupees. That's one thing I like about getting a haircut in India is I can always afford one because it's 50 rupees, which is about $1 Australian. And <laughs> I got this proper haircut in Australia, cost me $35. And I got it so that I could be on film, be on camera and look all right. And I ended up looking stupid anyway. So maybe that's the last time I get a proper haircut. Normally I just shave my head. <laughs> but let's bring this in. Let's pull this in. Let's bring the reins in. Here we are with the next chapter in our series. What happened in India? So this series is all about some of my personal stories of what happened when I was traveling in India and living at the Osho International Meditation Resort. So a lot has happened. A lot is going on. It's been quite transformative. And in fact, with all the stuff that was going on while I was there, with all the things that were sort of pushing into my being, there's really two foundational things that happened transformatively for me. And this is, these, these are two things that were happening concordantly with all of the awakenings that I was having, which I've discussed in the previous episodes. So believe it or not, as much as I've already said, there was, there's still more going on sort of at the same time as all these sort of emotional and existential and perception awakenings or experiences. And these two fundamental things were, were one was dance and one was Tai Chi. So I remember, I remember really clearly getting a, a strong sense of the importance of the physical body as a foundation for transformation and this was this thing that happened to me or this little encounter that I had with this guy when I was at the pool and I was sitting in the jacuzzi and I was sitting across from this Swedish guy or Austrian guy. He might have been Swedish or Austrian. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But he was this older guy and we were talking about you know, different meditative practices and what's going on here. And he was like, you know, you've got to do the three main Osho ones, No Mind, Mystic Rose and Born Again. And I was like, well, I've done two out of those three so far. And he kept going on about the body, how the physical body is gross. It's something you have to force. It's something you have to get into alignment. And he's talking about his different things that he worked on and what it was like for him. And I was sort of just having this conversation and I remember I remember one point in the conversation I was like do you really think all of this works how important is all this 
and he just sort of said, yeah, sure, it works. Just look at me. And he was sort of at that moment, like laid back in this jacuzzi, which was actually off. We'd actually turned it off to have it as stillness. So it's basically like a big bath. And he was sort of laid back there with his body perfectly still, perfectly balanced, perfectly aligned. And he was damn fit, right? He was damn fit, damn strong, and damn in alignment. And I just thought, you know what? It is just so amazing to have this perfect perfect harmony in the body, to have this amazing sort of coordination between everything. And it was actually something that came up again and again. It was sort of like you'd see quite a few people where if you saw them from the neck down, they'd basically be like in their early 20s, right? Really fit, really slim, really sort of agile, very well balanced. It's like this this really developed use of the body. And... This was something that I was going through. This was something that I was sort of working on throughout my whole time there. And the two core things were dance and Tai Chi or energy practice. And dancing really was eclectic at the resort. There's so, there's so many different types of dance and there's so many different times of day that you do dance. So, for example, when I was doing dynamic meditation and kundalini meditation and evening meeting meditation, that's already three forms of dance just there, right? Three times a day you're dancing. Then there's also the daytime celebration dancing, and you might have an evening time dance of some sort, depending what the event was. So you could be dancing up to five times a day. And not only that, but they're actually different kinds of dance because the dances that are in the meditations are brought on by the things that are earlier in the meditation and the music is different and sometimes the instructions are different. So sometimes a dance meditation would have an instruction like dance in a wild way or dance like you are in nature or dance like you were when you were, in a, when you were a child or this sort of thing. So to really explore dance and to have the body sort of do that, and like it's it's quite hard to fathom that like when I went there, it was like, you know, I don't dance. It's not my thing, right? And to go from that to just being open enough to dance in front of everyone, that's a big step. That's a very big step. And then to sort of go through the trip of like, well, how do I dance? How do I dance with someone? Because you're not just dancing alone and you're not just dancing in different situations. You're also seeing other people dance, right? You're also having your body open up in different ways. So your movements are changing. Your, your flow is changing. Your rhythm is changing. And you see other people's moves. Sometimes you pick something up, <laughs> right? And sometimes, occasionally, r- relatively rarely, but occasionally, you would see someone enter when they dance. You would see someone enter into the dance. And 
Of course, what that looks like is different for every person, right? Everyone has their own dance. Everyone has their own deep state or their own trance, right? And like sometimes it would be a woman and that is really something to witness, particularly a beautiful woman. Like when a, a beautiful, exotic woman is like in the middle of the dance floor and they're entering, something comes over them and something sort of takes over their body and they're, they're then, for want of a better way of describing it, they're then channeling something else. And I mean, you could, you could put it that way, but you don't really have to put it that way. It's just, I mean, it's just dancing really. But there, there's something of the divine, there's something of the spirit that's occurring within them. And when, when that happens, everyone knows, everyone around is, is like looking and just just being blown away by this movement, by this beauty. And then, <laughs> of course, sometimes it wasn't quite so beautiful, right? Sometimes it would be a goofy guy. Maybe I'm in that category or maybe it's just someone who's a bit funny and they enter and yet, and yet somehow it still has that sort of effect like, like when you see someone dancing and they're in it, it's like, whoa, okay, you can't deny it, right? You can't, there's this threshold which, which, you, which you cross, which is like, you know, oh, you just look so stupid dancing like that, which then crosses into like, whoa, you are really entering and it's infectious, right? And I remember like, I remember one of my friends ended up like, in the middle of Buddha Grove, like waving his fingers like this and like his tongue was out like this and his eyes were just popping out of his head. And it's just like, you see that and you just think like, <laughs> it's just like, you really entered, man. And of course, you know, I had that as well, right? That sort of moment. And I probably did have my tongue hanging out a bit. And yeah, like that whole process, that whole opening of the body, the physical body moving in fresh ways, in new ways, really brings about an aliveness. It really brings out a freshness in so many ways. And of course, it's also bringing up tensions, right? It's also testing certain things. You might be straining certain things. Sometimes you're exhausted. Sometimes people dance until they drop, quite literally. Sometimes people dance until they have blisters all over their feet. And that did on one occasion happen to me. <laughs> and then there's also, right, this whole thing of dancing with someone, this interaction, right, this back and forth who are you going to dance with? In what corner? In what way? Are they watching? Who can see who? These sorts of things are also part of the dynamic. And then on top of all that dancing and all that stuff, I've been doing the morning classes for Tai Chi and Qigong and energy awareness. So those classes would run like five or six times a week. And I would be going sort of on and off. Sometimes I would be going all the time to every class. Sometimes depending on what group I was in or 
how much time I was spending with my girlfriend or what I was doing or how I was feeling, what was the night before, these sorts of things. I would be going on and off basically for the whole time that I was there. And it took me it took me a good six months to learn the Yang style Tai Chi 24. So <laughs> it is quite a slog to learn that, but I know it now and I really do need to practice it some more. And I do tend now to have more of a focus on Qigong standing and energy practice rather than Tai Chi. But that process, living at the resort of having dance and then learning Tai Chi and learning what balance means, what alignment means, what openness of the joints mean, what flowing energy means, all of that was just absolutely transformative for me. And just as you have tensions coming up with your dancing and your meditation, you also have tensions coming up with your Tai Chi and your energy awareness, right? So it's not like you just learn Tai Chi and then you have awareness. It's not like that at all. It's like you go in and you learn it and it's like, okay, well, I really suck at this. I can't even get myself into the right position. I'm trying to sense it. And then I make a mistake. And then after a couple of weeks, I might get it. But then I realize that that's actually opening up a tension. That's actually opening up a pain that's releasing something energetically within me, which is quite hurtful. And then, of course, you've got other things like having it come into the daily life and extra practice. And I did end up doing a lot of extra practice some days. I would even have sort of like the morning class of Tai Chi and then do another hour in the afternoon. So I was doing, you know, maybe two hours of Qigong every day in Tai Chi. So that is just adding to this transformative practice, this unrecognizable sort of change in me, right? So my posture changed, my facial expressions changed, the way my head sits changed, the the way I moved changed, the way I sort of walked, my whole walk changed. And this was just so deep. This was so powerful. So that gives you a little bit more of an idea of how much is really going on, right? It's not just perception. It's not just emotion. It's not just meditation. But some of the most foundational things are dance and Tai Chi or dance and Qigong. And they they are both these two broad categories that have just just dozens of variations and explorations in them, right? Because it might be like, you might not feel like dancing some days. You might not feel good about dancing, right? What is dance when you force yourself to dance even though you don't want to? What is dance when you are tired? What is dance when you're fed up, right? Even in that, there's so many lessons to learn. And... <laughs> I remember one guy came came up to me and he said, either you're holding a coin between your ass cheeks or you've just done a Tai Chi lesson. <laughs> and that was sort of a funny way of saying like, I had the, the Tai Chi walk about me. And there, there's something sort of 
amateur to like like amateur about that, right? If you've got that sort of walk, it means you're you're learning and you're trying really sincerely to learn the Tai Chi movements and 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 embody energy awareness but you you're so obviously still a beginner <laughs> you're still not really embodying it naturally so yeah that that helps to illustrate a little bit more about what was going on and another amazing thing or another sort of component of all this was the people there and I know I've already said a lot about them, but there was this funny thing where you meet sort of characters that are in some ways mystical, and they're so mystical that you can see where fantasy characters come from, right. And it was so there was like there's so much opening and there's so much awareness and so much sort of receptivity to stories and narrative and people's life stories and what people are and their individuality that you can't see the difference between a fiction and a reality. You can't see the difference between a, a fantasy character and a real character, like the connection is so real. So I actually got to meet and become friends with a real life goblin, right? So a goblin, as you imagine them, really is something of, of a person. There is something in that character. I also got to meet a witch and it's not a witch in the sort of cartoony sense. There's still something human about her. But she's a witch nonetheless. And of course, she's not only a witch. She's also existential. She's also infinite. And she's also human. She's also an animal. But the witchiness, the characters of the the mystical witch were very much pronounced. And then I also got to meet a pirate, strangely, right? So everyone was walking around in their robes, their orange, not orange, sorry, maroon robes. Orange was back in the day in Osho's time. But I met this pirate who was so strangely dressed like a pirate, right? He was in his maroon robe, but he still had like the this sort of the belt and the the gear and a bandana and the, the pirate earring and the beard and it was sort of like, you know, if you just put a parrot on his shoulder He'd be walking, you know, he could be Long John Silver sort of thing. And I remember, like, I remember walking by one day and there was this this guy, this young guy, young white guy, who had just turned up and he'd been here for, like, a couple of days. And he, and I just sort of overheard him talking to this witch and he was sort of like so enthusiastic and so over the top with all that he was discovering. And he and he says, this place is like Harry Potter. It's like the real life Harry Potter. And I sort of just laughed and thought, yes, that's exactly what it's like. It's really like this 
this real life Hogwarts with these these weird characters in this other world where magical things happen. And another thing he said to that witch as I was walking by, I also heard him over say, I also overheard him say that a few days with you is like six months of real life. And that's true. Like, I got it. I could see in him that sort of fresh new discovery. And I was like thinking back, wow, this was, this was basically where I was at, you know, five or six months ago. <laughs> so that was really funny to have someone else say that this is like a real life Harry Potter. And it's the best way to describe it, right? How do you explain these magical things that happen? How do you explain these characters that are both so individual, so unique? They're just, they're just dripping, soaked with uniqueness. And yet also like they've walked straight out of a fantasy book. It's, it's really, really something. So... <laughs> to to continue with that sort of thing, that sort of idea, I actually got to meet a real-life Jedi. So, this thing of the Jedi in Star Wars is also like the witch, like the goblin, like the pirate, like Harry Potter, is also this real thing in real life. And... The Jedi was one of my buddies in the Tai Chi that I was learning. And he had the awareness, right? He had this force about him, we could say. He was like the master of the force. And we were like the Padawan learners of how do we gain this wisdom. And he was a fair bit older than me too. A lot more experienced. And I ended up having a session with him. So, the individual session was like an open session. And I remember going in, sitting down, and sort of sitting across from him and thinking, okay, well, I need to bring my issues up. I need to actually talk about, well, what is it that needs to move within me? And as I said before in an earlier episode, what I need to have move within me is this seriousness. And there was this story sort of attached to that, which I was still attached to. And he could sort of see that there was something deeper. And he said, now, come on, now, what is the real issue? And I said, the real issue, the real problem is that I'm still hung up on this girl. I still love this girl. And he sort of laughed at me and he sort of was like, hang on, but you still, you already have another girlfriend. And I, and I knew that, right? I could see the stupidity of like, just get over it. You've even got a new girlfriend. And yet I was still attached to it. And I was like, okay, this is my story, but I want to hold that story. I'm protected of it. And he was going into it and saying, well, why do you want to protect it? What are you so precious about? And I say, well, I want to write a book about it. I want to be able to actually share these experiences. I want to be able to talk about it. And he sort of just laughed and just ridiculed the absurdity of that. And he just said, like, you've got this book coming in 
which is just your idea, it's just your fantasy, and then you've got another book coming in, more more or less you're going to get another book if you keep going like this. And I said, well, actually, it's funny that you say that because in my mind, it is already a couple of books. It's not just one book. I could write a couple of books about these stories, these life experiences. And he says, well, there you go. You've got a book and then another book and it's coming in and it's just going like this and you're not going to be able to see anything. It's just going to be more and more like this and you won't be able to visualize what's in front of your face. And this whole time, he was laughing, right? And to me, it was this precious thing. It was this love of my life. It was the story of my life. It was the experiences of my life. It was this just like, like you know, opening and awareness. And it's like this, this you know, I really wanted it. I really had to hold it. And he was laughing and he was just sort of ridiculing me at how stupid I was, right? It was just this petty, childish little thought that I was clinging to, to my own detriment. And he was respectful. It wasn't like he really ridiculed me and put me down in a disrespectful way like it was within the bounds of the session right but it's sort of like that zen thing or it's sort of like the the jedi master sometimes the jedi master to their padawan has to sort of hit them over the head or they have to sort of point out how stupid and misguided they are and really quite frankly just childish right not childish in a way that is cute or playful, or anything like that. It's just, it's just immature. And that was a real revelation for me, to have my most precious, sort of profound life experience, up until then at least, to be laughed at and ridiculed as if it was this big joke. And that really moved something. That really moved a lot. And I sort of tried to maintain my dignity. Like I still had I still had a kind of dignity about me. And I still like like it wasn't an emotional attack. It was more of an identity ta- attack. Like I didn't I didn't break down and cry like, oh, there's something wrong with me. Yes, I know. It wasn't like that at all. It was much more about well, my identity. And I remember I got up from the session after having all this happen and we were going to go out and the last thing I did was I said, hey, just before I go, I want to do something. And I went over to the corner because I could see a bowl, one of those sort of meditation bowls. And I picked up the the mallet that it was next to and I hit the, the bowl, right? Now, normally when you do that with a meditation bowl, it goes boom, and it has this nice ring to it. And I just thought, ah, nice sound. And I thought, well, that will be a good way to end the session. And what I didn't realize was that there was actually something in the bowl. And instead of this boom, it was this sort of clunky clunk, right? It was just, uh, it didn't work. And the Jedi laughed. He laughed at me and he said, that's what you're like. That is exactly your problem. You have no harmony. You've, you're holding on to this fantasy and there's no resonance. 
There's no clarity. So that was a another example of the micro moment somehow perfectly aligning with the macro issue all in a simple, simple moment. And there is a way of actually looking at this and not seeing the the wisdom in it. Like it is a kind of wisdom to know when it's okay for someone to laugh at you. It's okay for someone to ridicule you because you can... You can easily, I think many people who aren't ready for that, be in that kind of situation and become defensive and become protective and sort of cling more to what it is that's sacred to them and precious to them. And if you're in that sort of space, any sort of ridicule or laughter is going to come like an attack, right? It's going to come like, well, like I need to dismiss you or I need to sort of demonize you. I need to say like, you're a bad person for doing this in anything along those sort of lines in whatever way the description comes out. But there's wisdom in saying, actually, no, something's coming towards me and breaking into my being, which is there to help loosen things. It's there to open things up. It's there to ultimately bring a harmony, right? Like the bowl that's being hit. You need to remove certain things that are inside so that it can hum, so that it can have that resonance. So that is a kind of wisdom, which is strange because in that moment you're so small, right? You're, you're, you're being put down in so many ways and you're, so, you're having your ignorance exposed to you in a way that you can't deny. And yet in that ignorance, there is a higher wisdom than what would have been if you hadn't have been in that situation. So that was something that came up again and again. And it really helped me along to open up to playfulness, right? It's so powerful to have someone laugh at your most precious moments and laughing from a place of perfectly understanding it, perfectly seeing what you're going through and in some in some ways having seen many people go through it before, right? It's not so precious to you. Many people have these mistakes and to laugh in a very sort of open, authentic way. It, it's... It's very powerful, like laughter, laughter as a, it, it's, it's sort of like Mystic Rose, in fact. It sort of comes back to this thing of laughter, right? Laughter therapy is not just me doing my laughter on me, but it can also be my therapist laughing on me, right? So, yeah. And you might say, well, how does compassion and empathy come into this? Well, you know, maybe if I was working with something that was a trauma or a past of some sort or a conditioning that was negative or something like that, maybe laughter wouldn't be the most appropriate response. And who who knows if the Jedi would have laughed at everything? Maybe not. Maybe. But for whatever reason, it seemed right. It seemed to move something in me. So 
that was significant. And I did actually, after about six months at the resort, take a trip back to Australia. Now, I did this because, for one, my next three-month turnaround was up. And so I had to leave the country. I had to do a visa run, as they call it. And I did this because I I just wanted to go home just to test myself out, right? If going to Dubai was a test of leaving the resort, I wanted to go home, see some people, see Australia a little bit as a test of, well, where am I at? And my intention was to pretty much come straight back to India to sort of come to Australia but not stay very long. Like I was was very open and I was happy to sort of consider staying in Australia. But if I look at it now, if I really think about it, I, I know that my intention always was to go back. So I flew in actually to Melbourne, not to my home city of Sydney. I flew into Melbourne and I flew to Melbourne because I needed to see someone. I needed to sort of suss out where I was at and where they were at and I was only there for a couple of days and then I went to Sydney and I was in Sydney for a couple of days and I saw some family and after only a couple of days I was booking a flight to Vanuatu to go and see a friend so I took a flight to Vanuatu and I was there for two weeks and I stayed with my friend and we had Islander drinks, we had Islander dances, we had some conversations, we shared some stories, I met some new people, we did some drinking, we had some fruit, Islander fruit in the tropics, and I spent a lot of time actually also just relaxing on a beach. I saw a starfish, that was very very heartwarming to see a real starfish in the wild. And I actually did a lot of writing when I was there. I wrote like a hundred thousand words in two weeks, just journal, just writing, just sort of processing what I'd been through. And then I came back to Australia for a little bit. And then I was on the plane back to the resort. And... I remember, like, being in a sort of reverse culture shock when I came back to Australia. I remember walking around a mall, a shopping center, with a friend for the first time and just, like, being completely blown right because my eyes were were really open my sensory perception was really open my heart was open my feelings were all full of this sensitivity and like to be completely submerged in in a mall like these elaborate products and these clean clothing and then there's jewelry and all this food and i remember we had to go and get shoes cuz i didn't have any shoes so i went to this shoe shop And it was like boxes and boxes of shoes and there was 
hundreds and hundreds of people all buying shoes and they're all wearing elaborate clothes. And India sort of, there were Western level malls in India and I did actually go to a few, but to sort of come back and to be right in the heart of a big mall and, and like to, to be hit with advertising, right? Like, a, like there's this supermodel wearing a bikini and like this woman in this just amazing, like this amazing dress and this amazing makeup and this jewelry and, and this, this just, just shiny product, like perfectly immaculately designed, perfect product. And it was like the imagery was so confronting, so powerful. And I remember like we stopped off for petrol. This might have been a different occasion, but we stopped off for petrol and I went in to, to pay for the petrol and the the guy behind the counter was Indian. And I didn't say anything. I wasn't like, oh, I just got back from India. I wasn't like that. But I remember like seeing this guy and thinking, damn, you're Indian and you're in this petrol station and and normally you would think damn what a what a terrible job right dead end job not very good what 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 are you doing with your life mate you know get yourself together sort of thing but to to see him and then and then look around and see well this this petrol station has has all these things it's got all this chocolate all these drinks all these products all these different things it's got this clean music, it's air conditioned, it's all perfectly clean. And it's like, compare that to like your typical roadside Indian stall, which is basically the size of a garage door and you're selling like a couple of products. You're basically sitting in a box all day and it's covered in dust and muck and you're by the road, so there's lots of fumes, right? Like, c- compare the two. And it's like, wow, working in a service station in Australia must be like this this elaborate job, right? This just, like, king-like job in so many ways. And it was just really shocking to have those two things in my mind, those two differences. And I didn't buy a car. I must have been paying for petrol for someone else or maybe this realization happened later on i don't remember maybe i was just getting something to eat i don't remember the exact details because i didn't buy a car in this little trip back i didn't have a car and yeah the reverse culture shock really was something and and then further still was like seeing people and telling them stories, you know, like what happened in India? What was your trip like? What did you see? What did you do? Right? These these sort of questions and then and then it it was almost quite funny. Right? I think I think a lot of the time when I got asked that, I would just laugh because someone would ask me what happened in India and then this like this huge explosion would happen in me right it's just like Bruh, India right and then I would just have to laugh like you, there, there's no way I could tell you right there's no way I could tell you anything like what has happened to me 
And of course, my family, my friends, none of them had any idea what was going on with me. None of them could see the change, or if they could, they didn't really notice it and they didn't say anything about it. No one could see really or make sense of like, you know, I'm sure some people were quite unsettled like whoa something has really changed with this guy something is going on i don't i don't know if it's a good thing right that that enters the mind has has something gone wrong with this guy you know people think those sorts of things and then what i saw in other people had also changed right and that was a very big contrast to be able to actually be grounded while being receptive to someone really showed me where I was at, really showed me that my way of relating to people had changed quite significantly. So that really was a sort of strong contrast to what I was going through and what I had been doing and how much deeper I needed to go or wanted to go and the sort of effect with all that had been happening so the culture, the environment, and the people that were around me and my family and my friends. And yeah, and like sometimes I would tell them a story, right? Like I'd tell some little anecdote or some little thing like I've been telling telling you. And their responses might be like, wow, that's that's a crazy story or wow, that's amazing and then sometimes it would be like, ah, but you just don't get it. Like, I can't explain the significance to you. And then they would say something like, oh, no, I think I get it, right? No, I understand your story. No, I see where you're coming from. And it was just like, no, you don't. You really don't get it. There's so much more depth here. There's so much more power behind this experience that is lost when I'm, t- when I'm telling you these words, when I'm trying to illustrate it, when I'm trying to convey it in these, these tiny bite-sized sounds that only convey so much, that only have so much depth to them. It, it's really not getting to it. And it's, it. It was a pain in some sense. Like I really wanted people to see the joy, to see the amazing beauty, to see the lessons, to see how amazingly glorious life can be. And of course, also part of me knew, right, don't get too strung up in not being able to convey these things because, well, there always is a limit between people. There always is this barrier. So, yeah, that was a very interesting time and in and in many ways I was still in India I was still sort of nested there I was still thinking about there my space was in there so this trip home to Australia was really just a a temporary thing and I booked another flight to go back to India and of course another reason I wanted to do this was because I was still with my girlfriend. I still had something going on there and she was really starting to flower. So I didn't want to miss that. So I booked my flight and I went back and 
I actually ended up moving in with her. I might have ended up moving in with her before I left, but I was moving in with her permanently. And she had this amazing place, this amazing high-rise condo, I guess you call it, on the top floor of one of the the places. And it was... Like, to have that in India is sort of possible, right? You can live like a king and queen in India because it's like you have your exchange rate and there's a lot more services available, right? Like, she could afford to have someone come and cook and clean for her just because that's what people can afford. And she could afford to buy out the whole place, rent out the whole place, when normally in Australia you can only get like one room for that sort of price. So that was another sort of good thing about India. And it really was a beautiful place. It really was beautiful to be there with her. And I sort of felt like, you know, this is a this is a rare opportunity for us to be together in this way. You know, this might not last. This might not be available forever. And of course, my visa was only available for a year. So I had to go back and make the most of that. Otherwise, I would have to reapply for a visa. So I booked my ticket. I got on the plane. I flew over. I arrived back in India. And this time when I came back, it was very different because, of course, all my friends were there and they would just be so happy to see me. They'd all be coming up like, ah, you're back so soon. We knew you would be back <laughs> like this. And I'd be walking around with my girlfriend and meeting these people. And it was like this beautiful reunion, even though I was only gone for like a couple of weeks. It was like this amazing reunion and this thing to say, yes, this is this is a kind of home. It's a kind of homecoming. And the most significant resolve that I had when I came back was that I would be doing the path of love. I said, if there's one more group that I do, it's going to be the path of love. And I had already missed a significant group that I wanted to do, which was only on a couple of times a year. And Path of Love was only on once a year. So I knew that I had to do it. I knew that I had to commit to it. And when I actually made that resolve and I start started putting the pieces in place to go through that process, then people started to realize, people started to know that something something was going to happen. And it was just like, just, just when people find out you're doing Path of Love, they, they, they almost treat you differently, right? I remember someone coming up to me and just saying, and th- this wasn't even a friend, this was just some guy, I think one of the facilitators or something, and he said, you know, path of love, you've decided to to do this. Well done. Good luck. Good luck. And 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 be brave, you know. So there's this there's an air of earnesty about it. And I had already known enough about these processes to be earnest about and, and to, to expect something powerful. But then to have that sort of hanging over me already 
was was really something. So I got the feeling this would be the the moment, the defining moment of this entire trip. So yeah. I'd just arrived back and made that resolve that I was going to do the path of love. And we will talk about that <laughs> in the next chapter. So stay tuned for the next chapter. Next week we will be back and we'll tell tales then. So thanks very much for tuning in. And have a beautiful day. Have a productive day. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for listening. It's been great to have you along for the for the ride. And I know I am a bit pepped up today. It's probably because, like I said before, I had a kombucha. So it has that effect. And we'll be back with the next chapter. Make, so, make sure you tune in. So thanks very much. And that's all I have to say for now.